Hello and welcome everyone to the Traction Stage podcast. Traction is what every founder in an early stage startup is looking for. It is the clear evidence that the market wants your product or service and it's when things start getting bigger and better. I'm Alexandre Azevedo and as your host I'll interview startup entrepreneurs from all over the world to better understand which were the elements they've counted on and the challenges they faced before finding traction for their businesses. In today's episode, I'll interview Mark DeSantis, co-founder of Roadbotics. Hello, startup founders. This is Alex again, and here we go to another episode of the Traction Stage podcast. Today, our guest is Mark DeSantis, co-founder and CEO of Roadbotics. Roadbotics is a startup from the United States that provides assessment of road surfaces and roadway assets using deep learning. So, welcome to the Traction Stage podcast, Mark. How are you today? Good. Thanks, Alexander. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your guests, your uh, listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for this interview. And, of course, congratulations for Roadbotic success. Yeah, thank you. It's been so, a relatively short span of time, so we've achieved a lot. Yeah, sure. Um, so, let's understand the basics Uh, let's understand about the problem you are solving and the solution Roadbotics is offering to solve that problem. Sure. Uh, you know, road inspection has been a, been a, a staple of uh, road maintenance for a long time. Let me give you an example. The, the Romans built a 50,000-mile uh, road network that extended across Europe, uh, Middle East, and North Africa 2,000 years ago. And some of those roads, like the Appian Way in Italy, are still used today. And one of the reasons they were so good at it uh, is, like any good road builder, is they inspected the roads regularly. And they would have, uh, the way they inspected them is they'd have a guy sitting on the back of a chariot. It was called a lictor. And the chariot would whirl down a road, and then that individual would look at the surface of the road, see problems that needed fixed, and then give those, that information to the local road crew to fix. That's how they did it 2,000 years ago. And that's how roads are inspected today. It's not a chariot. It's probably a Ford F-150 or a Toyota truck. It's two or three people in that truck going a few feet, getting out, looking down at the surface, making notes mile after mile after mile. Um, there are millions and millions of miles of paved road in the world, and that's how they're generally inspected. So you can imagine the process of doing that manually around the world is expensive. It's tedious. But the bigger problem is you're using humans to look at the service and make judgments about it. And everybody's opinion about what is a good, good road or a bad road is different. And so what we did is came up with the idea of solving the problem in multiple dimensions. One is let's make it cheaper, let's make it easier, and let's make it objective. And so what we did is I met a gentleman named Christoph Mertz, who is a researcher at Carnegie Mellon University in the Robotics Institute there. He had the idea of using a cell phone, specifically an app uh, in that cell phone, and the camera of that cell phone is the way to collect the data. That's how we use, that's how Robotics does its thing. So basically you download an app into a cell phone, you put the cell phone in the windshield of any kind of vehicle, camera pointed forward, turn the app on, records everything it sees. As soon as the, camp, as soon as the cell phone hits a friendly Wi-Fi, All that data goes up to the cloud and a deep learning platform then isolates the road in the image 
and then begins assessing the surface of that road pixel by pixel. And what it's looking for are about four, three to four dozen distinct patterns that show up on any kind of asphalt or concrete road. You probably, your listeners may not be familiar with terms like alligator crack or block crack or edge crack or raveling or rutting, but these terms are commonly describing features that we've all seen, but really don't appreciate when we look at a road. So we're able to do that by using a standard cell phone, some deep learning and assess that road in a far cheaper, far more efficient and consistent way for roughly about 160 municipalities uh, and counties and states in a dozen countries. Okay, so it is faster. It is a faster way, a more accurate way of of uh, assessing roads conditions, right? Yeah, and a cheaper way. Yeah, in a far less expensive way. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And and that that idea happened. Not exactly in the garage, but inside of Carnegie Mellon University, right? Exactly, Alexander. The, the way that worked, there's uh, Carnegie Mellon is famous for its AI program. I, I think people, most people would argue they're probably the number one AI program in the entire world. And among the um, programs they have inside the AI program is the now famous Robotics Institute, And within that, they have a lab that focuses on transportation. In fact, the Uber Lab and the Argo Autonomous Vehicle Lab, both of which are based in Pittsburgh, were ultimately spun out of Carnegie Mellon. That same group, and Christoph, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, worked there. That same group came up with the notion that, look, if we're using image processing to move a vehicle around, that is, we're using cameras to move the vehicle around, couldn't we use the same data to assess the surface, because after all, we're looking at the road. And so the idea was born really out of the autonomous vehicle lab. Great, very interesting, very interesting. So redirecting uh, the, the capability of the computer vision, uh, uh, you, you, could, you could do or you could produce another result that uh, could open a different kind of market as well. Correct, that's exactly right. And, and okay, with the idea, uh, for this new business or this new new kind of solution using artificial intelligence, computer vision, um, and and the features that you use for autonomous vehicles, uh, what were the very first practical steps you took in order to develop this startup? Sure. You know, I, this is my uh, fourth startup, and uh, Robotics was my fourth. And I learned some lessons previously, and one of the lessons I learned and I'm a big advocate for MVP. In my earlier tech startups, we spent a lot of time developing technology and developing a product before, well before a customer ever saw it. Regrettably, the challenge is it's really hard to know what customers are gonna like or not like, particularly if it's something brand new. And so what I did in my prior companies is I wasted a lot of time building something that ultimately didn't have a market because I really didn't understand the market. So in order to avoid that this time around, we did what, uh, for those listeners who might be familiar with a gentleman named Steve Blank, who's a professor at Stanford, entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, his philosophy is he calls it get out of the building, where you really want to go out and talk to people you think have this problem. So we did over 100 interviews. 
of people who uh, either in the business of road assessment, road maintenance, um, who kind of live that life. We made no mention, no mention whatsoever of our AI platform. We didn't talk about any solution or anything. We simply talked about their problems. How do you assess roads? Uh, how do you determine what is a good road and what is a bad road? How do you collect the data? All those questions allowed us to really get deep into the world of the customer. And then once we collected, I think we were around, you know, maybe 75, 80 interviews, we knew that what we could do could address that problem. So that was kind of step one, do the interviews. The second step was classic response was to create an MVP. We were fortunate we had a head start because some of the core technology was developed at CMU, but it needed a lot of work to get its commercial grade. So parallel to our, our uh, market discovery, the, the 100 interviews, we had developed a basic working version of the product such that when people used it, they could determine of whether or not this thing really added value for them. It, it, it's not so much a, uh, a way to make money, and we charged for it, by the way, but it was more a case of to get, elicit a response to see what, where the, what the customers were really looking for. So that MVP was enormously valuable in generating response. And, and I offer one other thing for anybody who's pursuing that kind of MVP strategy is those first, and I, I call it the rule of five. Um, it's one thing to have one user. It's another thing to have three users. It's quite another thing to have five users. I, I, I don't know. There's something about having five users of your product that is going to give you a robust, uh, rich um, response as to what does or doesn't work. And they're more, you know, not everybody's going to use it with the same level of intensity. They're not going to commit in the same level to helping you. But that that those five users really can make or break you in that first uh, iteration of your product. So those were the first steps. There were some other issues, other things we did, but I could talk about that, uh, you know, a little later in the discussion. Yeah, j j just to understand the point of the MVP, which is quite interesting, of course. Uh, how was this this first uh, this first version like? Uh, was it something similar to what you, what you have today? Yeah. Uh, and, you, and you mentioned you you charged customers yeah. uh, in the in the very first version, yeah. right? Yep. And, and those and I, I would say to anybody that's building an MVP, one of the things again, a bit of advice I would offer is the MVP has to be the fullest expression of your product possible without necessarily encumbering you with doing a you know, major buildup. What I mean by that is the MVP has to, has to uh, express the full, as much as possible, the full depth and breadth of what you're doing. So in other words, if I build an MVP that only does one of the three things that the ultimate product will do, I'm not sure what I've done other than just, you know, shared a feature uh, and made the offering a curiosity. What I want to try to do with the MVP is uh, if the MV if the product ultimately has to do five different things, well, then your MVP should have five different aspects to it, should have all those, all those elements in the MVP. You don't necessarily, doesn't work perfectly. They don't all work as desired, all those elements, and they may not even integrate. None of that matters. The point of it is, is to get 
the customer, the user's head around as much as possible what you're doing. And the last point on charging, you know, when you give things for free, people don't, you know, you want the user to commit to try to use it. And it's really, in my opinion, only when people have paid something for what you're giving them, do they really expend the necessary effort to actually try to use it. And so that's why we charge for it. So the, the first version was, was uh, or had uh, the, the, not the same feature. I don't know if the same features, but uh, with lower, uh, um, lower quality or yeah, something yeah, like I that? Yeah, I would or... say, yeah, that's the fair way to say it. Okay. It had the lower resolution. So let's just say mm -hmm. we couldn't see as much detail, right? It didn't have the user friendliness that the current version has. It wasn't able to um, see all the things it needed to see. Uh, it wasn't exactly mm -hmm. presented in the, in the most useful way. But for the most part, everything that's in the current product showed up in some version in, in the MVP. And, and what was the, or what were the, the customers' reactions that told you, hey, we have an evidence that this is going to work, we can accelerate, we can try to, to, to scale it? What were the evidence? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think people um, don't pay enough attention to the, to the type of feedback. What I mean by that is reactions like, hey, this is great. <laughs> or this is really cool, weren't terribly useful. In fact, what we wanted yeah. is we wanted them to critique it and tell us where it wasn't useful. So in other words, we typically would get a reaction, something to the effect of, wow, this really saves me time and money and uh, uh, has reduced the hassle. And we were not satisfied with that response. We would say, well, what, when you say save time, exactly how? So how does this compare to how you did it before? What do you mean by time? What, what aspect of time? Is it the time on the road? You know, you would actually sort of drill down on that. And we were constantly probing for areas where they were dissatisfied. You know, we, we'd say, look, you're not going to hurt our feelings here, right? Don't worry about hurting our feelings. Where is this mm -hmm. a disappointment? Because, you know, before we showed this to you, you had an impression of what we, it could do. We gave it to you, you've used it, and you have to be disappointed in some way, in some aspect of it. How are you disappointed? So tell me, you know, and why and what about that is disappointing? It's in that that is actually the, some of the most useful information. And, and did you find any any insight in these interviews or this, this, uh, this, this uh, or showing them the MVP that uh, that made you iterate the product or oh yeah, yeah. most definitely I mean I, I think I could, I could probably take up your your show uh, my segment here with that with that feedback but but in summary um, I guess the simplest way to put it was um, we thought that we had a, a a primary emphasis on this is a cheaper and easier way to do the work you do now. Right. Just put the cell phone in the windshield, camera pointed mm -hmm. forward, automatically assess it cheaper and easier. And it is substantially. But after a number of interviews and users started to give us feedback, they said, you know, that's not why we like it the most, though. That's not the reason we like it. 
The reason we like it is you solve the subjectivity objectivity problem. That's something we hadn't really thought of. And what I mean by that is an analogy would be if I gave, if I gave the same X-ray to all due respect to radiologists who may be listening, if I gave the same X-ray to five radiologists, I will get four opinions. The radiologists are trained, highly trained, highly motivated to look for certain patterns in X-rays that are indicative or more likely predictive of something more serious, like for example, cancer. The problem is, mm-hmm. and, and what they'll typically agree on is the extreme values. There's nothing here and you have cancer, very serious, you know, stage four cancer. The problem begins, however, is when they disagree on the intermediate states between nothing and serious problem. And because they disagree on those intermediate, intermediate states, the data isn't useful. Like for example, a city like London uses hundreds of inspectors. If those inspectors disagree on what a good road, a bad road, and a so-so road is, um, the data, all of it is frankly suspect. Our system solved that problem. That was not something we thought about when we introduced the MVP. We just kept thinking it's cheaper and easier. We didn't think about this objectivity, subjectivity problem at all. And now that's a feature. That's, that's the core value of the product. Great. Excellent. And, and now talking a, a little bit about your customer segments. And I've seen something interesting for me. Um, and of course, you can correct me if my understanding is not uh, right. But uh, you, you, you serve or you offer your, uh, your products or robotics offer uh, its products to engineering firms as well as governments. Right. And uh, what, I, what I'm thinking about is that uh, engineering firms or your relationship with engineering firms may be some kind of dual because they, they offer the same, the same kind of service that you offer to governments, they uh, offer too. And, and you, you have not actually decided to compete with them uh, totally but uh, you can provide them your products so they can do the work too for governments. Correct. Uh, how is this relationship of uh, competition yeah. and, and customer pro- uh, provider? Uh, was this something natural? Was this something that you discussed about? Great question. Great question. Um, so the way, if I may, the, this is probably more than your listeners want to know about how roads are maintained around the world, but In the United States, about 30%, uh, let's back up, all roads around the world, virtually all of the paved roads in the world are owned by uh, government. I don't care what city you're in, what place you are, the roads are built and uh, owned by governments, local mostly and Mm -hmm. some national. However, they're not necessarily maintained by governments. So in the case of the United States, about, a thir- about 30%, about a third of all U.S. roads, whether they be in a small town or a highway, are actually privately maintained. So when you see that person leaning on a shovel there in San Francisco, working on a road, one in three chance that person actually works for an engineering firm. In Australia, 100% of the roads are privately maintained. In Europe, it's about two-thirds are privately maintained. So... In the end, the end customer is a public entity. Entity, and in some cases, uh, we have our end customer 
uh, robotics, I should say, end customer, um, there's a direct relationship. So the city of Detroit, for example, hired robotics to do this assessment. In other cases, we work through the private engineering firm. Think of it in one case, you have B to G, where you have a direct relationship with the government that owns the roads. And then in other cases, we have a B to B to G, where the contractor uses our tool as part of a suite of tools they use to maintain the roads, of which inspection is just one aspect of it. So in that case, our customer is the contractor who then uses the tool for two reasons. One is they use the tool to meet the need, the requirement that they inspect the roads. So that's an obvious one. But the not so obvious one is contractors are now using the tool to assess their own work. So they're actually using it not just to service the needs of the customer, to show the customer they've inspected the roads, but they're actually using it to assess their own performance because they, after all, they're also repairing the road, uh, in some cases, building new roads. And those is a wonderful tool to, to, for them to, to maintain uh, the performance of their own work. All right, great. Now, tell me, looking at at all uh, at these years of the of development of robotics, um, since the idea until you got you got traction, uh, would what would you say was the biggest challenge in the way? Yeah. Again, boy, they're they are. Um, let me say that they're it's it's a balancing act. Okay, it's a balancing act. And every entrepreneur who's mm -hmm. been through this, I'm sure you understand this early, Alexander. Every every entrepreneur has to balance, in my mind, three things. Um, you have to raise money. That's just the nature of the beast for most tech companies. You can't necessarily self-fund or grow organically. You have to build technology that requires cash. You have to build a team, and then you have to build a customer base. And you have to do all three of those things simultaneously. And the biggest challenge for the entrepreneur is to keep them in balance. You know, if you're the entrepreneur, you're the founder, you're the CEO, and I've made this mistake. Uh, if all you're doing is spending all your time raising money, yeah. nobody's taking care of the farm. Nobody's there building product, growing the business, all that. If If you're spending all your time just building product, who's raising money? Uh, you know, some lucky few companies are lucky enough to have the venture capitalists knock on their door, but I don't think that's the case with the vast majority of companies. You have to go out and get it. Um, and then lastly, who's getting the customers? And I would maintain that those are three different skill sets, you know, selling a product, raising money and building Uh, building a team and product, three different skill sets. So it's really a team effort. But as the entrepreneur, you're the person on point. And if you don't hold those three things in some kind of balance uh, and you over commit to one or two of them, it's going to come at the expense of the third. So I would say to the listeners out there who um, the entrepreneurs out there who really don't want to be bothered raising money or, or getting customers or, for example, another entrepreneur who really doesn't have technical skills to build the product but really is a great salesperson, 
I would say to them, okay, if you're not going to do that, somebody's got to do that. And that somebody has to care as much about the company as you do. So you have to be prepared to, to balance those things or at least to have someone with you. Who's, who's committed, who's, who's as committed as you are. And that's often why I say the best startups typically will have probably three co-founders. So two, three founders, yeah. And if we if we look at, uh, or if you, if you would draw a robotics timeline, uh, and you could say to us the, the most important or most significant milestones or events uh, that happened that really shaped what robotics is today. I mean, anything that you think is relevant, decisions, hires, um, fundings, what, what are the, the things in your head or for you that, hey, these were the elements that made the difference along the time? Sure. I think they, they really fall into three categories. And I, and I would say to any listener, everyone's situation is different. So these may not be the milestones that, that others might follow, but ours were three. Uh, one was a little after, uh, say, nine months or so after we founded the company, I met a team uh, from an incubator called Urban X. And Urban X is BMW's incubator in the United States. A gentleman named Sean Abramson. Uh, his colleagues, uh, Micah uh, and Stonely and others who just are phenomenal. They really know the game. And they helped me rethink our strategy going forward. They also invested cash and introduced me to BMW, who cares a lot about what we do. So uh, that was a big milestone. So when you get the right partners like that early on who can invest, give you wise, sage advice, and they can really accelerate your, your growth. And they did that. It's a big milestone. A second milestone was when we got to around two dozen customers. So when we got to our, um, I'd say 20, uh, 20 some customers, uh, that was a milestone because, you know, it's one thing to get four or five customers. It's quite another thing to have two dozen. And, and we had enough data now with that uh, number of customers that really convinced us that we had something and that we were knew what we were doing. So that was, um, that was a big milestone. And then the third milestone was, this goes back to what I was saying earlier in the in the in the uh, discussion about partners and selling through uh, engineering firms to our end customer. When we got our first couple partners, and they actually sold our services to their customers, uh, you know, when they started to pick up two and three customers, we realized, hey, we've got something here. So the partnering strategy, the idea that that engineering firms would sell our product or use it for multiple customers really encouraged us a lot. So those three things I think would be the biggest differences. Okay, awesome, awesome. Um, now let's talk a little bit about funds. And I know you have you had several uh, rounds of funding uh -huh. uh, for robotics, including a Series A of 7.5 million last month. Correct. But what I want to know is what is the most valuable learning from all these uh, fundraising experiences you had? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I would say two things. One is I would tell uh, anybody that's listening that fundraising is not a sales effort. It's a matching problem. Now, what do I mean by that is early on in my startups, I used to think I had to convince people to not unlike selling a product, I had to convince them to invest in my business. So I had to have a winning strategy and a, a winning pitch and overcome all their objections and get them to 
uh, excited about investing, no, not unlike selling a product. I was wrong. It's not like selling a product. It's a matching problem. And what I mean by that is for every startup, uh, you know, the old expression for every person, there's another person out there just for you. Well, that's true yeah. in investing. In vet, there's a group of investors out there who are looking for someone at your stage, with your background, with your point of view, who care about the problem you're solving and the way you're solving it. And there's a, they, they're out there. Here's the problem. There are also hundreds and hundreds of other people out there who are investors who are not that person. And so your challenge is to sift through all of these potential investors to find those perfect matches, those, those folks who really resonate with you, what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it. And I say to those people out there raising capital is don't get discouraged when somebody says, um, gee, I'm not interested because there's a lot of different reasons why people don't invest and often because it's not a good fit. So that's, that's, that's one thing uh, I would advise. The, the other thing is do not underestimate the level of effort it takes to solve the first problem, the matching problem. Um, you know, people would say, well, I've done, I've done 20 pitches and uh, nothing's happened. And there's a part of me, there's an internal part of me that's too polite to laugh but uh, out loud, but I chuckle inside because I say to them, uh, anybody who's ever read the story about the, um, the Salesforce and the founder of Salesforce and how he went to something like 60 or 70 VCs and they all turned him down. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for any new and novel product is that matching problem for some people is more challenging than it is for others. And I would say to the people uh, out there seeking investment, count on not a couple dozen uh, presentations, you know, count on maybe close to maybe a hundred or more before you find those three or four investors who are going to make all the difference in the world. I, I do not underestimate the level of time and effort as a CEO. I probably spent two thirds of my time raising money or doing something relating to raising money. Um, that's an astonishing statistic for a lot of people out there because they think, well, I, I could be building product or selling or managing and you could, but uh, fundraising demands your attention. And so be prepared to give a substantial amount of your time and be persistent. All right, awesome, awesome. Well, we are moving towards the end of this interview, uh, but before finishing it, I would love to, to, to ask you a piece of advice to start founders that are listening to us. What would you say to them? Yeah. You know, this may seem a little bit of an odd advice, but let me offer it anyway. Um, your people, I've had a friend who used to talk about his company. And I said to him, when you say his company, what do you mean? Well, it's my company. I started it. Do you have investors? Yes. Do you have employees who are shareholders? Yes. Do you have partners? Yes. It's not your company. It's a company that you founded of which you are the leader. And I think for, for any entrepreneur out there, think first and foremost about solving a problem and building an institution to solve the problem, not about building an ego. 
And I say that because sometimes it's hard for entrepreneurs to, to accept that. They, they think of their company as their company. It is not their company. It is something they created, a beautiful, magnificent thing that's solving an important problem. But if you find yourself emotionally attached to the status associated with being the founder or the CEO, you're going to set yourself up for failure. You sh your satisfaction should come from giving other people the opportunity to create wealth, investors and employees, giving your employees the opportunity to have a life-changing experience and the most important personal growth opportunity they may ever experience in their lives. If you can draw satisfaction from those things, you can create not only great wealth for other people, but great wealth for yourself. And you have a much higher likelihood of being successful. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was an awesome advice. And thank you so much for this interview. Um, thanks for sharing with us your experience and, and in, in developing uh, robotics and, and everything that was in, in this process of, of finding, finding customers, uh, funding a company, and, and, and really reaching people out there. Thank you so much, Mark. And, and I wish all the best for you and for our robotics teams too. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alexander. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And how about you? Did you like this episode? Please visit us at attractionstage.com and leave your comment. There you will find all the episode's show notes as well as additional information about the founders and their startups. I'll wait for you there. Bye-bye.